Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week, we discuss strategies and tactics to help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. The B2B world has changed and you need to put your customers at the heart of your marketing. We'll cover how you can use our framework, the five Bs, to create a brand that customers are ready to buy from, love and advocate for. We'll get insights from successful people in the industry and cover the latest trends to keep you on the cutting edge of the B2B world. If you're interested in B2B marketing strategies and tactics that work, then this podcast is for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer. Welcome back, listeners. This week, we have an interview with Ryan Gibson, an outstanding customer interviews expert. Now, when George said to me we had to have him on the podcast, I knew from his tone this would be a good one. So for a bit of context for our listeners, we're jumping back into our Be Ready stage this week. In episodes 10 and 11, we talked about how to deeply understand your customers. Part of that which we didn't dive very deeply into was conducting effective customer interviews to get those qualitative insights to build out your dream customer avatars. So this week, we've been fortunate enough to get Ryan on the show to talk about what his approach is to getting the most out of such interviews. So you can hear firsthand from an expert and set your B2B marketing strategies on solid foundations in an accurate and well-produced dream customer persona. Yes, Kev, there's some great learnings and really granular details to guide our listeners through this data collection process. So we hope you enjoy this conversation as we dive really deep into the customer research process with Ryan Gibson. Kev, a couple of points that I think are probably worth highlighting for our listeners before we dive into the interview. The first being, if you can figure out how and why people are buying, even before they come to the product, then really your ability to spend your marketing budget wisely is going to increase and you're going to be more competitive in the market. Another great point was qualitative data gives you the why and quantitative only gives you the what. So it's important to have a look at both, particularly focusing on qualitative if you haven't already. 
You need to have a process around your qualitative interviews too, Kev, and you also need to have comparable qualitative data because that is a key piece that's also often missing. And as George and I always say, go talk to your customers, walk through the basics of who they are, what their roles are, what their responsibilities are, and specifically what their pain points are and use their words then in your marketing content. I also loved how Ryan showed us that you need to set clear and limited objectives when you go and collect data from each of these interviews. It takes work. It's not really an overnight process. So you've got to have the right expectations to get this process down. But a good system can help get it right and allows you to do it efficiently. And that's something that we were very lucky Ryan shared with us. There's plenty of other nuggets of gold in this episode, listeners, so be sure to check it out. But there's one final point that we'd love to leave you with before we kick into the episode that Ryan made, and that is take action off the back of the data. As good as the data you can collect, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, if you let it sit on the shelf after it's collected, it's wasted and nothing of value comes out of it. All right, listeners, without any more delay, let's kick into the interview with Ryan Gibson. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook. Today, we have a very special guest, Kevin. We are joined by customer research expert, Ryan Gibson. Now, Ryan is the founder of Content Lift, where he helps B2B marketing teams run customer research interviews that, quite frankly, don't suck. He mostly works with B2B SaaS companies, helping them fine-tune how to get the most out of customer interviews and then turn insights into marketing actions. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the B2B Playbook. How was that introduction? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that was good. It just makes me sound smarter than I am, which is always nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me on. This is, I'm looking forward to it. No, we're stoked to have you here. And look, as marketers, I think that's what we spend half our time doing is trying to make ourselves sound smarter than, than what we are. Um, and I love, I love how, how frank your little tagline is on LinkedIn too about running customer research interviews that don't suck. That really, really stuck out to me. And Ryan, I've been following you for some time on LinkedIn, kind of stalking, I guess, a little bit for a while until I <laughs> yeah, finally, right. finally got the confidence to uh, step up and engage with you. And I've really been loving all the awesome, helpful content you've been putting out there about conducting customer research because it is such a hot topic that everyone's discussing. But you have quite a, I would say, a more specialized, interesting angle on it. And Ryan, just to give you and the listeners a little bit more context on why Kevin and I wanted to have you on today, last season, Kevin and I spent literally 20 episodes um, in depth about the importance of deeply understanding your customer and customer research is an enormous part of that. So after I saw everything you were putting out there, I said to Kevin, I'm like, Kevin, we have to get this Ryan guy on the show. Our listeners are going to love him. So Ryan, after that long run up, I basically want to start off this conversation by asking, you've had 20 plus years experience in the marketing world. Now you solely focus on customer research through one-to-one interviews. How come you decided to niche down there? Why did you decide on that? Oh, God. You can take us back. I lost my mind. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You can um, take us back as as far as as you like or as recently as you like. I would just love to know, yeah, how you you reached that decision point. Was it where you felt you could have the most impact? 
Yeah, like well, there's like a long version and a short version. The short version is is probably that, right? That's what you just said is the impact. You know, I've been, it's been a year now. It's funny enough. I just posted about that last week. I I totally had forgotten it'd been a year, and I was looking at the calendar. I'm like, oh, I guess it's an anniversary. Congrats to me. I had been a consultant for two years prior to that. But as I was a consultant um, and I was working as a fractional marketer, that's basically like someone, it's a fancy way of saying part-time, like I work part-time yep. in business. It sort of dawned on me as I was going through this or working with SaaS companies, how they over-indexed into a lot of product decisions or customer success, because onboarding is important in SaaS, right? And churn is very important. All those metrics are very vital when you look at like the finances of a SaaS business and, and the health of it. So I'd, I'd see all these these focus or this heavy focus on that part of the business, which is good. And then I watch product marketing managers do qualitative research. And sometimes they spend an hour talking to a customer and come away with like three sentences. Uh, and that's what they'd base their marketing decisions on. And I was just like, what is going on? So, that was sort of the start of it. And then around, it was probably the beginning of 2021, I had some, an old colleague reach out to ask me if I could do some qualitative customer interviews. And because it had always been my go-to. So, so the longer answer to that is I'd always done it. And it had always been the foundation of how I approached marketing. So they asked me if I could do that. I was like, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And, you know, I hadn't done that work th as a consultant for the two years I've been doing it. I've been working mostly on branding, communications, go-to-market strategy. And after I did the interviews, I was like, oh, I really liked that. I forgot how much I loved that part of it. And then they asked me to do more for some of their clients because they were a consultant too. And I was thinking, this is good. I wonder if this can be the thing. Maybe this can be a thing. So I started looking around the market and there's some people doing this, not a ton. And I was like, I think this is where I want to go. So that's how I, to answer your question, George, like that's how I landed on it because one, I love it. I love talking to customers. I love getting the insights that it unlocks to inform your marketing strategy. And I figured that's where I can provide the most value because I, 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 the hill I will die on is that if you can figure out or have a strong grasp of how and why people are buying from you even well before they come to the product, your ability to either spend marketing dollars wisely like your ability to spend those that budget in a better way is going to increase and you're going to be more competitive in the market which are all the things we care about right and when we're trying to win so yeah that was a long answer to your question but that's sort of that was it i was like so now i'm a year in and we'll see to be continued whether it was the right the right choice no, that, that is awesome. It makes so much sense, I think, uh, particularly to Kevin and I. Uh, we've always felt that customer research is what lays that solid foundation of your marketing. And if that's not done right, then everything you do after that can just be so incredibly grossly inefficient. And Kevin and I have seen that as, I mean, our first foray out of the legal world was actually in the performance marketing world. And when we were there, we didn't have that opportunity really to go and do that kind of qualitative research on the customer. That was all sitting client side. And oh, yeah. Even that that largely depended on how that client was handling that. It wasn't in it wasn't our role. It wasn't our position. 
to go through and do that work for them. And we didn't have that ability to go in there and work with them with the customer. So I, I think that this this niche that you've that you've carved out is such an incredibly important one. And I think particularly as the demand generation movement gets more and more energy behind it, uh, I think people are going to look about how they're doing their qualitative research. You, well, you have, there's, if I may, may I just jump in there really quick? You just, because you touched on something, it sits with client side, and that happens so much that I see. The challenge with that is, and it gets back to what I talked about with either customer or product, right? Those are contextual conversations for fixing that part of the business or improving that part of the business. You can't get better at demand marketing or branding or how to position in a market or how to influence the decisions people make prior to um, a, a, a sales motion if you don't understand how marketing works, right? It's very hard for a customer success person to come in and, and ask questions in the context of a go-to-market strategy. They can do it, but they're not going to be as good as it as a marketer. And that's where I think a big gap falls in where you just said it. I, don't, I didn't get access to them. And that happens a lot. The problem there is, is that now your marketing team is not working with a, with a full, complete set of data or a good story or a good understanding of how they want to spend their money. So, yeah, I, I hopefully it becomes more important, especially as the market in SaaS becomes more commodified. There's just going to be more and more SaaS companies in the coming decade than ever before, especially with no-code platforms. It's just going to get more competitive. So if you can't figure out where to throw the dart strategically, it's going to be very hard for marketing teams. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your question. I just wanted to no, touch on no, that. No, no, no. I think that's a really, really great, um, really great point. And I think just taking it back to what we're looking at here is qualitative data and getting companies comfortable with using qualitative data. I think normally people are very used to using quantitative, seeing big metrics, big numbers, and then making decisions based off the back of that. Do you find that is a challenge with them at all? Saying, look, we're going to strip this right back. We're going to interview a bunch of people. It's not going to be hundreds of people, but we're going to pull some very real insights off the back of this that are actually going to provide you more value. Uh, than all of your analytics that you're doing um, at the back end. Yeah, it, it can be. It, I think there's a few reasons why, right? So one is skepticism. There's some people who think that we've over-indexed on technology and marketing. I, I, I sort of fall into that camp where we, we, we think the dashboards are gospel and that they're going to dictate everything. Like I've seen people build buying journeys off Google Analytics, and they say to me, oh, I say, well, how did you come up with these hypotheses of who your ideal buyer is? Oh, well, it was in Google Analytics. And sure, like that, some of that's going to be right, but most of it is just really a guess by Google, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I, you know, or even our CRM or whatever, whatever hot tool you think is going to tell you, like even Gong, like people think Gong is like this ever now like it's like a crystal ball it's great it's an awesome tool but it's still a sales conversation it's not what's happening before sales unless you use gong to record those conversations right so i think that's part of it and then i i think the other thing is people really struggle with how to create rigor around qualitative conversations 
so that they're not all over the place and that your insights are actually um, statistically relevant. So what I mean by that is how do you get a cohort of interviews and the questions you ask this cohort of interviews to be as apples to apples as possible? That is a key thing that I think people don't necessarily do. And there's a few ways to go about that. We can get into that in a bit if you like. But if you're not doing that part, then your answers, uh, it's going to be tough for you to find patterns and themes that are relevant to how and why people buy. So I think those are two of the reasons why. And then probably the third is it takes a long, it takes work. Like yeah. it, is, it, ain't, it, ain't, it ain't an overnight process. And I, I was just talking with a client today. We're going through a round. I'm working with them and I'm interviewing their clients. And they're actually sitting on all the interviews with me to sort of watch how this goes. And they've said to me, they said to me, no, I've I tried to do some of this work before and it always felt like it took too long. And I was like, well, yeah, because it does take a while. If you take 12 half 45-minute interviews, let's just say, because usually 12 is like a good number to interview a cohort of, of an ideal client, you know, that's how many hours of video or transcription work you've got to parse through. But if you have a system, it gets much easier and then you'll find that it's going to give you a ton of stuff. The last thing I'll say is too, like if, I've read a lot of a lot of a lot of good companies that they actually, if they have a tie between quantitative and qualitative, they'll actually index towards qualitative data over quantitative. I think Amazon is big on that. So it just shows you like there's there's a lot of learnings to find in those qualitative conversations. It's just you have to have the time and you have to have a good process, like anything else. I think that answer the question. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. No, 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 it does. Absolutely. And I think provides a lot of launching off points from there. Um, I mean, you mentioned Amazon. They use qualitative data over quantitative, you know, a lot yeah. of the time. It's very, very important to how they make their decisions. And I think I've seen you say elsewhere, Ryan, and you might have even just mentioned it there, qualitative customer research interviews, they give you the the why, whereas quantitative only give you the what. Yeah. Uh, would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, and it's not my like that's. I can't take credit for that statement. Like I, people have talked about that for some time, right? And that's some genius they came up with that one. <laughs> that's all right. I definitely, I'm definitely not a genius. Just <laughs> talk to my wife; she'll tell you the limits of my cognitive <laughs> abilities. But <laughs> the why, like, yeah, quantitative gives you a snapshot of like what has transpired. It's all raw data. Sometimes it's aggregated in a way that you can tell a bit of a story. Sometimes it's just fully, um, you know, uh, stuff that's a scatter shot of things that have happened. You got to compile it. 
So like surveys are a good way of, of, of sort of highlighting quantitative data that tells you something that happened but also might tell a bit of a story, right? Or Google Analytics that I talked about before is just raw data that you got to try and figure out how to make sense of it. But that's just what happened, you know? This thing did that. This person clicked here. They were on a page for two minutes, right? They converted on this page, whatever. But why did those things happen? Like, why did they convert on that page? Why did they take three months to go through your sales motion? Or one of the things I really like to try and understand when I'm talking to customers, let's just say they become problem aware, I, you know, two years before they buy a solution and they become solution aware a year and a half before they buy a solution. Why did they wait? If they knew that there was a problem and then they saw a solution, why did they wait a year and a half? And I've seen that happen. Like I've talked to customers that have waited sometimes three years to buy a solution they knew existed. What was happening in that three years that they felt it wasn't worth me spending money on or it wasn't a priority or whatever. There's so much to understand as a marketer about how they're making decisions on these things before they even get to your website or before they come back into a sales motion. So that's why I like the qualitative side because it really unpacks those things, but what's driving their decision-making. The data just tells you that they took an action. Ryan, that's a really interesting point around how those insights on the qualitative side can impact decision-making in terms of product, in terms of how you actually see what's happening in platforms and things like that. There's, and this comes from another podcast um, by Sean Ellis, I think, on the growth side. And they're talking about this trend where, you know, product and growth marketers are actually starting to become hybrids and those teams work a lot closer together or sometimes even looked after by one or two people. And so they're actually across both product and growth, um, which means, I guess, the marketers and the product managers are finally talking to each other and, and learning from each other. What do you think of that movement and where, where I guess, uh, interviews or this qualitative um, data gathering sits in with that new trend? Do you mean like, um, like who owns it or like how growth marketers are using it? I, I think a bit of both. Um, I'd love to get your take on how you see that developing, how then the, the responsibility of doing this qualitative piece then sits across both teams or who should look after it as they get a lot closer and they obviously have differing opinions and they start to um, butt heads at certain points, especially when, when it gets to talking to um, you know their customers because product will wanna ask a specific set of questions, sort of own that product development journey but marketers have this need to know what's going on in their heads before they're in the platform, before they make that decision. And both are equally important to business, but it's like, how do you balance that? How do you see, and perhaps how have you seen that work well, where both are actually working quite closely together? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things there. One is like who owns it, and that one's always tough because it's, like you said, there's a bit of a balance I, how I look at it as, or before you get there, like for example, I'm working with one client now, their UX team does the customer research mm. because they're trying, they consider themselves mostly product led, right? You, they're trying to get people in the product. So a lot of times even the mar go to market motions will dictate that. If I'm sales led, 
then I don't necessarily maybe need the product team to do that research. But if I have something where the, the customer is always in the product, there's probably a good there's probably good value in having the UX team or design team, the product team do a lot of that research. That said, there to your point, there's still different things that you need to know. So how maybe how I phrase this is or I'd look at it a little differently is whenever you're doing your planning, whatever that's annual, quarterly, what have you, some people have annual plans and then quarterly reviews, where are the gaps in your knowledge? And that's often different teams will have a different sense of what they don't know or what they feel they don't have enough data around. If you can prioritize where you think you're going to have the most impact, that's where I'd start. And that's who can maybe own the first pass of research, or at least you can dive into it. So say I'm trying to, I am going to do some research and product has, you know, one really good question they want to ask, but they don't need to necessarily have a full scale conversation. Maybe I can do it on their behalf. So I think you're gonna figure like where the gap is and then you can figure out who owns it. That one's always gonna to be tough. I think the politics gets in, in the way of a lot of that in organizations. Yeah. So I think you just need to be very frank about, yeah, it does. You need to be frank about um, how they're using, uh, who gets to talk to, what you're gonna be talking about and what value that's gonna to bring to the internal dialogue of the company. Because we are very, always very concerned about taking up too much of customers' time because everyone's inundated with all sorts of things from different companies. So it's, I think it's a valid point. So I think you need to figure out where your priorities are and who you think is best positioned to do the research of the priorities or the objectives that you, of the things that you want to know. And I think part of your question was like the trend towards using qualitative and growth and like sort of uh, growth marketing. I think you're going to see more of that, to be honest. I think you're already starting to see it because it's, Let's just take email marketing. How many solutions are out there? I mean, gosh, like a hundred now. So how do you differentiate? It's not going to be based on SEO somewhat, and it's not going to be based on, you know, finding the right hack. It's really going to be what value does this solution bring to an ideal profile of, of the market? And then how I get at them. You still have to have some of the, those growth metrics in place because still, you still have to execute on platforms and understand whether what you're spending money on is working. But that qualitative side of what the value proposition is and how I'm competing in the market and what, what the end state is I want that customer to have, that's going to be more integral, I think. Some might disagree with me, but that's just how I see it. Yeah, I think you're right, Ryan. I think like as we move towards a world of plenty, everything becomes essentially commoditized. Uh, I think you really have to carve out that niche, you have to identify that ICP and you probably have to start narrower. And to get cut through there, uh, you have to be able to really understand that ICP, exactly what they're thinking, exactly what their pain points are. And then you have to speak to them in a way that they understand, right? Like you have to be able to communicate with them in a way that actually levels with them and speaks directly to them. So they then identify with you versus the other 99 other platforms out there that essentially do the same thing. Absolutely. I think sometimes we're afraid to niche down too, right? Like, like Salesforce is a good example. Salesforce is a good example in the beginning. They didn't start off as where they are now. They started off as this very small company that had a tiny bit of the market going after, you know, online software. People thought they were out of their minds. But now you look at them and they're an industry leader and people or HubSpot too, right? Like to try and compete against those players now out of the gate is a lost cause. 
you need to start as a niche like they did years ago. If you, even if you go to HubSpot's webpage, which you can find from 20 years ago, it is not what it looks like now. It's a very niche product. It's a very unique thing that a small subset of the market was using. It's just now the market caught up to them. So what is the next evolution of SaaS look like, right? It's probably very customer service focused, um, lots of very specific features for, uh, for specific communities. And then who knows what the next evolution will be there. Maybe we're all inside the metaverse using software, like who knows? But that's what marketing is, is finding that niche, those niche capabilities of how you're gonna get into a market and grow revenue from there, right? So, so Ryan, you've previously mentioned another form of qualitative research is sales calls. Why do you feel that that one-to-one -one customer research is, I guess, a, a better form of qualitative data? Sales calls are, are still good, don't get me wrong. They, that is often what I usually call the gold standard. When I, I've been in B2B for most of my career and sales calls were considered the gold standard for quite some time. So if you were a marketer that listened to sales calls, you were ahead of the curve. You're like, whoa, you listen to sales calls? Like you would <laughs> use that in interviews to like land a job. Like, well, when I listen to sales calls, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so great, yeah, awesome. But the challenge with sales calls is that they're contextual. And what I mean by that is if a sale, this just goes back to what you believe sales to be, and this is where I believe sales to be, is that it is about helping um, a high intent prospect make the best decision out of a short, a short list of options that they've whittled down over time, right? So it's probably three to four. If it's an enterprise deal, maybe a few more, and there's you know maybe a lot of people involved, and trying to navigate all those things from like legal implications to how they're going to onboard, all the other associated costs, cost of switching, like that is a sales conversation. And the initial discovery calls you have with prospects, typically they know a lot about you because now consumers are more educated than ever before. Um, Gardner did a really interesting study where, you know, they said by the time people get to you. They've pretty much, I think, are seventy percent of the way have chosen. Like, most of the time, they're going to choose you, right? Like, seventy-eight percent of them will choose you if you've done your job really well. So, the problem is, though, as a marketer, it goes back to what I said. This day, I don't know what's happening prior to that because a salesperson's not going to necessarily want to uncover that. They're not going to want to. They're not going to uncover what other solutions people were looking at before they even started looking at solutions. How they got to this. You know, I'm a big fan of Jobs Be Done, and for anyone that's not familiar, that's an innovation framework were um, developed in the 90s by Clayton Christensen. And the short of it is, I'm trying to figure out like what the series of events were, uh, or the series of triggers and pains that crystallized my decision to go and look for a solution. Like, why did I stop using Google Sheets and I started looking for HubSpots? Like, what was happening in the business? A salesperson's not gonna really try to understand that. Some do, but most don't because they just don't have time. So I can listen to this, so your question, I can listen to these sales calls and understand sort of the surface level of why they came to us, but I'm not gonna get anything that's gonna influence their decision-making process for other prospects. I'm not gonna get any insights that allow me to influence other prospects earlier on in that journey, which is so important now to be top of mind and create mental availability for my brand. So that's why I think they're okay You'll get some good, maybe some good copy ideas, maybe the odd content idea, 
But if you want to understand your like to really influence your go-to-market strategy and how people are buying, you have to go and do the work yourself as a marketer. Sales calls are just sort of scratch. It's that iceberg thing, right? They're just going to see like they'll peek out of the water. And there's so much underneath it. Yeah, particularly as the power continues to shift towards the buyer and they get to determine really their own buying journey. I think that makes a lot of sense. You can't just get that information from the sales team because at that point they're yep. already so far through. They are you know, almost at that most aware, if not product aware uh, point in their journey. And then all the juice, all the information is in those other stages of awareness before that. So it makes a lot of sense that um, sales calls, while they can help you, I guess, probably identify a problem again, it really doesn't tell you the whole story and doesn't allow you to map that customer journey beforehand. Yeah. And if I may, I was talking to someone last week. They are, uh, they, they've been a VC, like an early stage founder, sorry, early stage investor and the, uh, two times founder. Mostly sales-led organizations. And they said the same thing. They said something very similar to me on the, when we were, we were talking about maybe possibly helping their business. They said, I had heard the murmurs six or seven years ago about customers becoming more informed than B2B, and I sort of dismissed it. Now, these days, I totally believe it. They are definitely coming to us more educated than ever before. So before where they thought it was a bit of a fairy tale, now they think, no, it's the reality. And this is a person that's invested in companies and they're, in a, sec they're a second time founder. I, uh, I love on your website, Ryan, um, how you have an image of like the sales funnel and then a big cross through it and be like, no one cares. <laughs> no one cares about your funnel. I thought that was so good. And it, I think it's absolutely true. Like we try and pigeonhole our buyers uh, into this idea that they're going to progress in a linear fashion through this funnel and then we can push them through it. Um, but ultimately, it's their journey and we have to be there to usher and guide them through it. And uh, Ryan, I just feel like you've absolutely nailed it in terms of focusing on the most important aspect of what I think is um, you know, the new buyer journey and being able to understand it, which is literally asking people I guess the important questions of why why did they buy? Actually, you know what? You're you're the expert, Ryan. I mean, maybe you can share a little bit more about your process with our listeners about how you actually go about conducting that customer research and then the kinds of questions that you ask to uncover what that buying journey looks like. Yeah. Before I answer that, I'll touch on the people don't care about your funnel. I sort of threw that up a year ago. Um and again, it's, it's just came from me sitting in many marketing meetings or, you know, customer discovery calls, not so much with me, but in other ways where people just have this perception where, okay, well, we need some tofu and mofu and bofu. And then, uh, yeah, once we get that, we're good. Or they think that the website is like the start of the, how people start making decisions. And it's just like, the funnel as the sales funnel as you see it is actually as a model is over a century old. Right? People forget that or they don't know it. You can wiki it like it uh, I want to tell you is not anything is not public knowledge. So and now there's all these different hybrids of funnels, right? And then that's actually in the presentation so it's like um that one is the common one people think of um which is a sales funnel. Um and then there's also the flywheel which 
people tend to sort of uh, affiliate with HubSpot, but it's actually older than HubSpot. Um, McKinsey actually has their own one for B2C, but if you look at it now, it's uh, from 2007, I believe. It's called the Consumer Model. It's actually looking very similar to what a B2B SaaS model looks like. It's really interesting. And because it's highly commoditized industries that they were talking to. And then Jobs Be Done is the one I like, which is not so much a funnel, but a process making decisions. So I'm going to, that's a good segue to your question of how this works. So I like the Jobs Be Done methodology, but I use it as a marketer rather than an innovator because a lot of Jobs Be Done um, conversations typically is with product people because the whole rationale of Jobs Be Done is, I have a problem or there's things that are happening in my life or business and then there's you know, um, a, an end state or a promised land or there's this dream thing <laughs> area that I want to be in because I'm tired of all this happening and I wanna under, I'm trying to understand all the barriers to getting to that end state. And often that's where businesses prop out of which is what are the, the blockers to where I want to go and, or I can remove the blockers, or at least reduce the friction, and there is born a product, right? Well, the reality is that's how people make decisions too about the products they, that already exist. You know, I, I try to understand what the blockers are and uh, what I want to get to, and I'd research options about how to solve those things. Sometimes solving that blocker is a piece of content I found on HubSpot's website. Sometimes it's a new tool. So. I take a lot of that work and I'll interview people in the context of how they make decisions about their business and how they make decisions about solving problems in their role and how they make decisions solving problems in the context of what their KPIs are or whatever their corporate objectives are, their annual operating plans, whatever. I want to understand those things and the challenges they face in achieving those things because that's where marketing tends to start to live, whether it's thought leadership or like SEO articles around solving a niche problem. So I, what I do is I will find, um, the researcher rule of thumb is like eight to 12 people, right? Because after about 12 interviews, you get start to get diminishing returns in qualitative data. So I'll find, we'll start with an objective, whatever that is. You know, one company I'm working with now, they're trying to understand why their high contract value clients are taking the longest to close. So we're going to go talk to them all, right? It's a very specific thing. And that gives me my, my apples to apples comparison, which I talked about earlier. So then I walk through, you know, all their, who they are and their roles. And uh, mostly I'm speaking to the champions for sales led or the person who, who's the predominant installer and user if they have the budget and they own the budget for like a SaaS company, if it's product led. And we'll talk about the roles, responsibilities, what they care about. Then we talk about their pains, their anxieties, any problems they have, uh, which is a lot of that either content opportunities or it gives me starts giving my messaging and my positioning. Then I talk about, I figured out how they researched, right? Where did they go? Who did they talk to beyond Google? How they evaluated the shortlist and how did they make a shortlist? And how did they evaluate the trade-offs? And then sometimes I talk about like their experience if they want to, customer success wants to know a little bit of there, but that's typically where I hand off. And from that, I get an average journey among a cohort of buyers about how they're actually moving and making decisions within the context of their business. Because that's where you really start, to, you can, if you know all that, 
now it can influence that. That was a really long answer, George, to your question. I apologize, but I mean, that is it. Like, that's the process. It's not complicated, but it's just going through the motions of it. No, I appreciate you giving us the context and actual process that you go through um, to do that. And thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Like, um, it's awesome to have that insight. And I think people do tend to overcomplicate this as well. And I love how you admit that, you know what, it is actually quite simple. Um, But Ryan, there is an art to it as well. (laughs) I mean, you've done a lot of these before. This is why... This is why businesses bring you in to come and do it for them or with them. When marketers go out and try and do this customer research themselves and talk directly to the customer, what do you think that they miss that uh, if they worked with you that they would pick up on? Yeah. First one is setting the objectives, right? Which I talked about, which sounds so simple. This happens though, even with my own clients, they want to cram so much into a half hour conversation. Case in point, I had one company I was working with, they wanted to understand new uh, types of maybe feature sets to build as well as how they can build a referral program. Those are two separate conversations, but they wanted that to happen within 30 minutes. We People don't understand how quickly 30 minutes or 45 minutes goes by. You would both would understand this because you are now in the context of having a conversation that lasts 30 to 45 minutes. You know now by experience how quickly it can go. But most the average person does not understand that. So the objective is the first one. And the second one I would say is they, are all, they think it's a friendly conversation and they're going to be all and they can just go wherever they want with it. When I conduct an interview, it looks like a friendly chat because it is, but it's actually still a very controlled environment where I am going to, I'm taking people back to a, um, you know, an end state that I want to get at. There is certain things I want to discuss and humans by nature go off in all sorts of tangents and direction. And that's great because they want to give as much information as possible. You have to get them back to where you need them to be because if I can't get those specific things talked about, over the course of those 12 interviews, then it's all for naught. And that's what I see happen a lot is people just jump on a Zoom call or hit record and they're just all over the place. So you have to have a system about keeping people on track. Um, And maybe the third one is, and this one's gonna sound almost silly, they don't do anything with the data. And it's so easy to do that. They don't set any action items with like any of the findings. There's no like follow-up. That stuff sits on a shelf like most a lot of reports do or the course like in any business. The, but it's such a lost opportunity because if you, if you go on my website, um, I have a, my, call it my one case study with a company called Rewind. They're a SaaS company. We built action items out of the research for everything and we're still doing it for, we're still doing things four months after the research because it's not just a, a switch like we had grossly misaligned our entire approach to who the buyer was and what they cared about so you have to like you're not just building new marketing materials you're you're also re-educating the entire culture of the company about who the buyer is that takes time so you know there's a lot to do um those are the three biggest ones that i see there's probably more but i could probably i'd take them another half hour probably talking about it 
No, well, I was going to ask about, uh, actually, you know, once you've done this research and it's so interesting you say that the hardest point is actioning it and so few people actually do take those qualitative insights and use it in actionable ways. What are the main ways that we can use these qualitative insights? There's a few. One is buy-in and it, we talked about, pol- I said politics earlier, and that's a big one for especially like companies as they get bigger in size and you have more people at the leadership team politics often can dictate how they approach their strategic initiatives as opposed to like the data and when ahmed who is the product market manager at rewind he said this was such a crucial piece for getting everyone on the same page get alignment like we talk about alignment between sales and marketing and often that's like us sitting in a room and you know hashing it out this crashes all those walls down because it's a, a full roadmap of like what people are doing. And you can, I always say when I'm in a meeting, I don't say I think this. I said, well, the research has shown us this because it has. So, you know, getting buy-in is key. Two, the second thing is it helps you, uh, especially for content marketing and messaging. So with Rewind, we overhauled uh, like core messaging for the product that we we did the research on um i wrote all new ads for them and the ads started performing incredibly well from the like from we launched them we actually doubled the number of self-installs for their self product line almost over the course of six weeks right so there's those things uh the you know any other landing page that we had incorrect information on the ahmed uh, changed and now we, the content so what's really great about if you understand, I talk about process and like the journey of the buckets, you start to see like what content actually makes sense to help move them from each stage to the next. Some of it's thought leadership, some of it's direct response. So now you know what the actual topics are they care about that they're looking at that eventually led them to you. You're not just sitting there guessing or you're looking at Ahrefs or SEMrush, which is still, they're still good tools, but they don't know like what these people care about in their jobs. So now I know, and I, so now I can create content around these things. And if you start sending that stuff out through your outbound and your LinkedIn conversational ads, rather than, hey, buy my thing, you'll be amazed at like the, what you start getting back from like outbound, right? Because I know everyone, outbound's a bit of a, a, what is the word I'm looking for? Some people really don't like it, but it still works well. You just have to have the right thing, right? So now you might know what the right thing is. So that's, those are the, some of the ways you can use them. Um, it, it just totally, for me, it changes the game. It changes everything. That's why I like doing it. Yeah, you mentioned uh, how you went ahead and rewrote their ad copy and their landing page and everything performed a lot better. And Ryan, I'm sure you are somewhat of a, a copywriting genius, but... <laughs> oh, no, God, no, no. I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> I, I can see you are a good copywriter. I can tell that from your LinkedIn posts. Uh, it is engaging. But I would hazard a guess, Ryan, that more than anything you were probably just repeating the words back that you heard in those customer interviews um, back to those dream customers, back to those prospects. And all of a sudden it had a whole lot more cut through. That's all it is. I've dropped really good nuggets from interviews into ad copy the next day or that day. It's just to see how it'll test for exactly the reason, George, you mentioned. This is what they call voice of the customer work, right? So I'm getting... You know, the way people describe the problems in the context of how they do their job and the solution that they need to do that job. 
So yeah, of course it lands better because I'm not just sitting, I was that B2B marketer for years that just sort of thought it up in my chair and put it on the, the page and like, this sounds good. What are my competitors doing? I'll Google them and maybe <laughs> I'll try and tweak what they're doing. It's horrible. Like that, all I'm doing is wasting money and time. Whereas now I can go right to the source of like what is good. Now, one caveat to this though is, you know, really good people who do a really good job of positioning will tell you this, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with April Dunford, she's Canadian like me. Um, and she works a lot on positioning and messaging. The, you have to be very careful. The customers can't position your product for you. They can just unlock insights on how you should position the product, right? Because it's still within a market against other competitors. And that's up to you as the marketer to understand how to position in the market, right? So absolutely use the customer's words, but you know, have some editorial leeway or understand like, okay, how can I use this to my strategic advantage to really make tractions in the market? So definitely, but one little caveat I would put there. I think that caveat makes a lot of sense. And ultimately that's, what's going to help you position your product to stand out from the rest, yeah. isn't it? As you said, the buyer can't do that for you. They can just tell you about their pains, their anxieties. And then we go in there and play doctor, I guess, and, <laughs> and, and uh, prescribe whatever medication it is that they need. Or at least that's what I tell my dad, who is a doctor and unfortunately got a marketer as a son. Well, a, a failed lawyer first, a marketer second. Um, very disappointed. But uh, I say, look, dad, you know, kind of what we do is like, <laughs> it's like being a doctor. Yeah, man. Marketers <laughs> diagnose. Absolutely. You just diagnose different problems. Yeah, we're just diagnosing different problems, and uh, the consequence, I guess, is is your bottom line. So it's not life and death, but hey, it, it's important stuff. It is important stuff. I will say though, um, you know that classic thing of marketers always struggle to explain what they do for a living. It's yeah. actually much easier for me now because all I say to friends and family is, "Oh, I just interview people's customers." Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is awesome. That is so so yeah, good. And, that's made and, that know, one part easy. Yeah, I, I I think that is so great about <laughs> niching down in in what you do. And I don't know if I can speak for you, Kevin, but since we started in performance marketing and have really moved away more towards demand generation, which I actually think is really just. Um, reverting back to the fundamentals of marketing. I kind of feel like a born again marketer. <laughs> and I feel like my opinions on marketing and what works is probably the same as to what was very popular maybe a hundred years ago. But we lost that. We lost that in the last 20 years because we became so tech focused. And uh, now I think ultimately it's competition, commoditization that is forcing us to go back to those fundamental tenets of marketing. Ryan, is there anything further that you'd like to add to this conversation? You've given us so much insight, so much gold for our listeners as to how to conduct their customer interviews as to why it really is, I think, the gold standard when it comes to qualitative research and informing really your whole marketing strategy. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation that we might have missed? For me, it's like anything else, you just gotta get started. I, I actually had someone message me this week. They had said, they're a, mark, they're a content marketer, and they had said they had always found it, the idea of talking to a customer, very nerve wracking. Now, I, I started in B2B food service, you know, 
in front, I'd always had customer facing roles. I was a reporter for three years, a news reporter. I took a little detour, as they say, <laughs> and came back to marketing. But I use a lot of that now in my work. So I get that because the reality is I still get nervous sometimes. And I'm really, I've interviewed almost, you know, I think 1,600, 1,700 people now. And it can be a real nerve wracking. But if you're prepared, right, you understand what do you want to talk about, what do you want to get out of it, and you have a system. That'll make it a lot easier. And as soon as you start doing that, oh man, like it's the stuff, the change I see in marketing teams, getting to work with them and they get access to this type of insights, their world just dramatically changes. And they get back to, like you said, a born again marketer. They get excited about marketing again, right? Like getting to do that work because they feel like now they have more control over how they get to do their work rather than just having either the company or the external environment dictate what they think they should be doing. Now they get to understand, this is what I think I actually should be doing, right? It just changed everything. So, and if anyone wants to re reach out to me, like I'm, to I'm very active on LinkedIn. <laughs> Whether my copy's any good, I don't know, you seem like it, George. I'm still <laughs> getting my act together. But yeah, they can reach out to me and I'm happy to help anyone if they want to message me. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that would be fantastic. And Ryan, like I do really like your LinkedIn content. I actually, I'm ashamed to admit that I only just put the connection of the little red balloon that you start every LinkedIn <laughs> post with to the fact that you are content lift and have yeah. a big red balloon on your homepage. But look, yeah. I made the connection um, <laughs> eventually. And uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to go and follow Ryan Gibson. I think a Ryan Paul Gibson on LinkedIn. Yeah, go Ryan Paul Gibson. That's another branding thing that people are like. I just go at Ryan, but now when it's like, <laughs> Ryan Paul Gibson, I'm like, it just makes <laughs> you me know sound what? more formal. You you are so lucky that uh, look, you have three names there, and they're all easy to spell. I've. Good. George, <laughs> George Kudinaris. Do you think anyone could ever find me on LinkedIn? Yeah. <laughs> if, Just go by unless, George unless C. Unless it was written down somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> George C. Yeah. George C. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's a name change on the cards. Look, thank you so much again, Ryan. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. And again, listeners, please check out Ryan on LinkedIn. Check out Content Lift and uh, hit him up. Hit him up if you have some questions and if you think that he can help you in your business. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, George, you were right. Ryan was someone we had to get on the podcast. Boy, did he share some great points. He really did cover some of the practicalities of getting all the important qualitative data into your B2B marketing. Gee, it's so nice to hear you say that phrase, you're right, Kevin. That is music to my ears, but... <laughs> I was right. I absolutely was right. Some of the points that really stood out to me, Kevin, in being right was Ryan showed us that the qualitative data gives you the why. The quantitative data only gives you the what. So if you can figure out how and why people are buying and what their buying journey is, then you can really start to influence their decisions. Well, George, sometimes you are right and credit where credit is due. Another great point that Ryan made was there is no substitute for talking directly to customers. And George, you exemplify this better than anyone I know. You are always talking to our customers, our potential customers, our potential listeners, and making sure you get to know what their decision-making process is, what their pain points are, so we can create content that's very helpful to our dream customers and our listeners. So listeners, be sure 
to talk directly to your customers. Yeah, I mean, it's also because I'm a, I'm a middle child and I love attention, but thank you, Kevin. <laughs> it is always great chatting to our listeners, to our potential customers and just listening to them. And now with all that extra information that Ryan has given us, I think we can probably even be a little bit more focused when we chat to our potential customers to make sure we can help them even better, not just sell to them better, but understand their problems even more deeply. And then of course, Kevin, as Ryan said, you've got to take action off the back of this data. We can't just collect it all and have it sit on a shelf. George, I think the final point that I want to remind our listeners of is that qualitative data allows marketers to be reborn as it has for you, George. And it's something to get us excited about the work that we do in marketing again. Yes, yes. We're all born again marketers, Kevin. We're born again (laughs) demand generation loving marketers. And I would like to call our listeners to action now, Kevin, like every good piece of marketing should and say, listeners, go and follow Ryan Paul Gibson on LinkedIn. He's got awesome content when it comes to how to conduct these dream customer research interviews. As always, thank you to Kevin's great work. You can find links to everything we discussed in the show notes. And listeners, we are so grateful that each week more and more marketers are tuning in every Monday morning to get their dose of B2B goodness. And if we can ask just one thing, it would be to please leave us a short review on whatever platform it is you listen on. It's always an amazing help to us and we'd really, really appreciate it. Thanks again. Take care and catch you next week. Take care, listeners. Catch you next week. A quick note before you go, listeners, you can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there to get the latest news, tips, and resources from our playbook. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer.